Hello, hello. Welcome to the Making a Marketer podcast, the marketing show for all levels of experience with the best guests in the industry. Get ready to learn and laugh. Here we go with your hosts, Megan Powers with Powers of Marketing and Jen Cole with Social Media Examiner. Hello, hello, and welcome to Making a Marketer. Our guest today is somebody that I have been trying to get on the show for like a year and a half, and I'm so excited that he is here today, Duncan Wardle, the innovative, the creative Duncan Wardle, and I'll introduce him in just a sec, but we also have a guest co-host today. We have brought back our lovely Elizabeth Glau. She was our co-host in seasons one and two. So if you haven't listened to those seasons, go back. Hi, Elizabeth. How are you? Great. I'm so excited to be here and to talk to Duncan. Yeah. So I figured it was appropriate since I know that this is going to be a topic that you're going to be super hot on. And also because you were with us when we took our selfie with Duncan at Social Media Marketing World 19 as a foreshadowing of you know, having him on the show. And the year has gone by fast, has it not? Oh, it has so much. (laughs) Yeah. Well, isn't this, this is like day 87 of March, isn't it? Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like the longest month in history. Hi, Jen Cole. How are you? I'm wonderful, Megan. How are you doing? Good, good. Hanging in there. Yeah. Hanging in there. Okay. Hi, Duncan. How are you? I'm on my third jigsaw. How are you? (laughs) As a measure of time (laughs) in March, that's funny. I like it. All right, cool. So first, just say real quick, this show is sponsored by Powers of Marketing, Strategic Marketing, Training and Development and Execution for small businesses for all things marketing, but obviously a big focus on social, especially in this digital age Okay, Duncan, I'm going to read your bio. Drawing on his experience as head of innovation and creativity at the world's most creative organization, the Walt Disney Company, Duncan now serves as an independent innovation and design thinking consultant, helping companies embed a culture of innovation and creativity across their organization. He's an inspirational keynote speaker, and he puts on creativity and innovation workshops. And I think, Jen, you've attended a couple of those, haven't you? And would you talk? Well, yeah, we we had him in Wichita one time, and then I went and visited him at one that he did in Kansas City recently. So it's pretty amazing. Did you know there were two Kansas cities? I found out. I I found out because I went to the wrong one. Oh, no. No, seriously. I I mean, what country has two Kansas cities? I mean, come on. So I checked into the hotel, and the guy goes, I don't have you on the list. And I said, well, I think you must. I'm here to do a workshop. And he goes, oh, you must meet the other Kansas City. And I was like... What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> I've done that in I mean, Kansas City too. And, and I live here. <laughs> well, not who knew? Yeah. Who knew? Crazy. Funny. I love it. <laughs> All right. So you can find Duncan at DuncanMortal.com. And that's where you can figure out how to invite him to speak and all that good stuff. You uniquely gave a keynote to an empty ballroom recently. Did you not? You want to tell us a little bit about that? I did. I went from social media marketing world directly from. San Diego via New York over to Copenhagen. And, you know, with everything that was going on, they were supposed to tell me before I got on the plane if they were going to cancel the conference, but they waited till I landed in Amsterdam. And, but very bravely and, uh, and very well, within five days, they turned it into a virtual conference. Now, I say virtual wasn't completely virtual because all the speakers were actually physically there. We were on a right. stage speaking to a, a thousand empty chairs. 
it was interesting, you know, and I said to them, I said, you know what, I don't know who's going to tune in. If, if I've been given a day back, I'm going to go do my emails and catch up. This was two or three weeks ago, obviously, before everything completely hit. But it was oversubscribed. So who knew? And they did a fantastic job of pulling it together. That's wonderful. Well, and as somebody who used to work in audiovisual production, that crew still got the gig too. I mean, they had already paid for everything, right? So it's Mm -hmm. nice from that perspective that all of those folks still got the work because that's kind of like, I think, the forgotten thing about when when events get canceled, all of the freelancers that like, they're not being paid by a corporation. So the backup funds are not exactly. um, exactly. I I have 0% business as we speak, which is why I'm on my third jigs. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we're going to get some words of wisdom from you today. And hopefully it will help everyone else kind of out there in a remote working world, figure out how to work better. So we're going to let Jen kick it off with our first question. So, you know, we're we're definitely in a time of transition right now. A lot of people are going from being in the office to moving everything online. It can be unsettling. It's disruptive a lot of the times. And for those of us who are used to flexing our own innovation and creative muscles in certain ways that, you know, we've grown accustomed to in knowing ourselves, do you have a tip that you would suggest for ramping up creative juices from home and staying mindful of our own creative windows? Yeah. I mean, look, I'll ask the question that I always ask, and I'll ask you all to close your eyes and just uh, shout out the first word that comes into your mind when I ask the question, where are you and what are you doing when you get your best idea? Shower. There you go. See, and you've got a shower at home. See? Indeed. Just get in the shower, you'll be fine. No, here's the thing, right? And you know when you are, when you're in that big argument with somebody, and the moment you walk away, you come up with a killer one-liner you wished you'd used during the argument? Yep. It's because when you're in an argument, and where is your brain is very busy defending itself. And so you only come up with that killer one-liner just after you've walked away and given yourself time to think. When we're in the office and we're extremely busy, we've got emails, we've got presentations, we've got, and suddenly I'm now at home and I've got hmm, time to think. The biggest barrier, we did a survey of 5,000 people at Pixar, Marvel, Lucasfilms, Disney, Imagineering, ABC, and we asked them what was the biggest barriers to being more innovative and creative at work. Number one always comes up, I don't have time to think. Well, guess what we've all got for the next goodness knows how many months. We have finally got time to think. So I would argue, use it. You know, it's that mind state you get into where you're sort of metaphorically in the shower. Uh, You could spend more time in the shower. No, but seriously, here's the thing. We're at a point in time where we have time to think. And think about the amount of industries that will have to pivot really quickly. The industries who were on the decline anyway. And now that's just going to be accelerated. The analogy I would give you is back in 2004, we had three hurricanes roll through central Florida. Up until then, everybody used to use the I-4 that went from northeast Orlando to southwest. And that was the main route through Orlando. And if you wanted to get through Orlando, that's the road you took. But there's also a loop road called the Greenway. Nobody wanted to use it. Nobody ever used it because you had to pay a toll. I used to take it every day. It used to take me nine minutes to get to work because nobody else was on it. Suddenly, the hurricanes came to town and the I-4 was closed several times because of trees falling on it. And everybody discovered the Greenway. Has anybody gone back? No. Now think about physical retail. Think about the baby boomers. The the the, the vast majority of the income still lies in the elderly people uh, of the, the US, for example. They're retired. They've got more money. They probably haven't used Amazon before. They're 65 years or older. They probably haven't used Uber Eats before. But guess what? The next three months, they're going to be their biggest fans. So what will that mean to physical retail? We used to go to sports events and we used to enjoy the shared physical environment. They're going to sponsor concerts and sports events. I think that's going to move virtual really quickly. We have 
all of us now working from home. Well, our employers are pretty much very quickly going to decide and very, you know what, I pay how much rent? Well, no, actually, no, I could actually have people work from home. So just think about all these industries that will have to pivot really, really quickly in order to survive. In order to do that, though, they're going to have to think differently. And so one of the tools that I use to think differently, whether you're virtual or physical, it doesn't make any difference. It's, it's called what if. What if the rules of my industry no longer applied? Because some of our industries need to be broken up really, really, really quickly. And so what you do is you list all the rules of your industry. So, for example, Walt Disney, when he aired Fantasia back in 1940, he wanted to heat pumped into the theater during the, the sequence with fire. And he wanted mist pumped in during the sequence with rain. And the theater owner said, no, Walt, too expensive. So Walt listed the rules of going to a movie theater. I must go at a set time. I must watch the previews. I must buy the popcorn. I can't take in my outside food and beverage. I, Walt, can't control the environment. He said, well, what if I could? Well, that's not provocative enough. The more provocative and surge or what if questions, the further out of your river of thinking, this area of expertise and experience that we all have, we get. And so he said, well, what if I take my movies out of the theater? Well, that was an absurd suggestion in 1940. We said, well, if I take my movies out of the theater, they couldn't be two-dimensional because they fall over and I don't own the screens. Oh, wait, what if I made them three-dimensional? What if I made them three-dimensional? I'd have to have people play the characters. If I had people play the characters, I'd have to make costumes for them. I'd make costumes for Cinderella. Well, Cinderella can't live next to Jack Sparrow or Davy Crockett because people wouldn't be immersed in her story. I'd have to put her in a different land. Oh, wait, what if I called it Disneyland? Bang, the biggest creative suggestion of the 20th century. Here's how this tool works. You list the rules of your challenge as quickly as you can. And I'll go through an example in just a minute again. You ask as many absurd what if questions as quickly as you can, and you land a new big idea. We all used to go to Blockbuster Video. We all got fed up of paying late fees. So did the founder of Netflix. He listed the rules of going to Blockbuster Video. You had to drive to a physical store. You have to go during opening hours. You have to be kind of rewind. I can never get the one I want on opening day weekend. I can only get three at a time. I have to take them back or I pay a late fee. And he said, what if there was no physical store? What a stupid idea in 2005. What a, how absurd is that? And he looked around the world and guess what? YouTube already existed. YouTube was streaming amateur content at the time. He said, well, wait a minute. What if I just stream professional content? What if I do a deal with Disney and Universal Studios and Sony and Columbia and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and I'll just stream professional content? Well, let me think. Nobody would have to drive to a physical store. My store will be open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can rent as many as you want at the same time. You'll all get the money you want on opening day weekend. Nobody has to drive anything back. I'll cut the rental off after 24 hours. Nobody pays a late fee. I know. I'll call it Netflix. I'll take my idea to Blockbuster Video five times. They'll turn me down five times. I'll take them out of business in less than five years. Now, it's easy for lots of people to look at Disney and Netflix and say, I'm only a small entrepreneur. How could I possibly do that? Walt Disney was bankrupt in 1940, and Reed Hastings was working out of a garage in 2005. But a smaller example to bring it to life from people was a very small company with 26 employees in Nottingham in Great Britain in the 70s. They used to make glasses that we drink out of. And they noticed that when the glasses were being packaged and wrapped, there wasn't enough production. There was too much breakage. So they went down to the shop floor and just watched their employees packing and shipping the glasses. And they listed the rules, 26 employees. Cardboard boxes, 12 glasses to a box, glasses separated by corrugated cardboard, glasses wrapped in newspaper, employees reading newspaper. Ooh. So somebody asked a relatively provocative what if question, what if we poke their eyes out? 
Well, that's against the law and it's not very nice. But because they had the courage to ask the provocative what if question, the lady sitting next to him said, well, wait a minute, why don't we just hire blind people? And so they did. Production went up over 22%, breakage went down over 65%, and the British government gave them a 50% salary subsidy for hiring people with disabilities. It is about asking the absurd what if. We all have what I call our river of thinking, which is the more expertise and the more experience we have, the more reasons we know why the new idea won't work instead of asking what if it could. And so, you know, another example of another great company founded on what if was two guys walked into a bar. This is not a joke. <laughs> I can't remember what city it was. It was late at night. It was raining. They couldn't. They'd been drinking, so they couldn't drive. And one of them turned to the other and said, what if every car was a cab? And guess who went on and founded Uber 12 months later? So it, again, it's about listing the rules of your industry as they exist today as quickly as you can and then picking one rule and saying, what if that rule no longer applied? And coming up with as many stupid what-if questions, statements, and ideas you can in less than 120 seconds. The reason, of course, you can do it early is the quicker you do it, it'll stop you thinking of all the reasons you know you can't do it. And then you take one of those what-ifs and develop a new idea. So I do think this is a unique moment in time for all of these industries that have done business the same way from 1920 to 2020 and think it will continue to work for the next decade. It was never going to work for the next decade anyway. So take one of the rules of your industry and Ask, what if that rule no longer applied? Duncan, I'll, I'll also add to that that, you know, as a reminder, yes, Netflix disrupted the way that we, you know, watched videos at home, but they've completely pivoted their business model twice since then, right? They went from the, the mail and DVDs to streaming, which was a huge pivot that you know, required totally different workforce with different skills. And then they pivoted to creating content themselves, which was, you know, yet an, another huge pivot. So it's not always about, you know, starting something new that's disrupting an industry, but it's, you know, disrupting yourself, right? Before yeah, that's you very true. Before you get disrupted. My old boss used to say, if you don't like change, you're going to hate irrelevance. That's, awesome. that's that's a nugget right there. <laughs> we're gonna have to we're gonna have to um, quote that when we share the the episode. All right. So of course, is a very Duncan response. I love this. This is gonna be a great show. All right. So um, this is a little less heady. Maybe what's one piece of advice that you'd give to organizations that have just adjusted to having their teams be one hundred percent remote now for how to build or grow a culture of innovation still while they're all in their own domains. Don't fill their day with meetings, weekly meetings, weekly reports. Don't give them time to think. They've finally been given time to think. Goodness, no, give them time to think. I think that would be one. I think that would be the biggest one is genuinely give people time to think, perhaps throw out a challenge to the team, a hackathon, perhaps, if the, if the organization has never been done a hackathon before and said, hey, we're looking for ways in this period of time to cut costs because we have to. What are the ways that, what are the time saving, what are the cost cutting ideas that you could see that could help see us through for the next six months and open it up to everybody? Because here's the thing, the one people who won't know how to cut costs will be your executive team because they're too far removed from the front line. But if you get in there with your frontline cast members who work that operation and work that shift every single day and know every crook and every nanny of how to fix it, you'd be amazed how many new ideas you could come up. Also, by opening it up to a wider body of people, you invite in more of what I call those naive experts. A naive expert is somebody who doesn't think like you. Uh, and because they don't look like you, they don't think like you. And if they don't think like you, they can help you think differently. I'm a massive believer that diversity drives innovation. I've seen a 78-year-old woman called Mildred drive a $221 million idea for the Walt Disney Company after wow. something she happened to say at lunchtime. 
So do you, do, has anybody got pens and paper with them? You guys got pens and paper? Come on. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Challenge number one. So we were asked to design a new retail dining and entertainment complex for Hong Kong Disneyland. I had in the room 12 white male American architects all over 50. And I invited into the room as my naive expert, a young Chinese chef. Why did I do that? I did it because she was the antithesis of everybody else in the room. She was female. She wasn't male. She was Chinese. She was an American. She was under 30, not over. And I just knew she would think differently to the way we think. The role of the naive expert is not to solve the challenge for you. That is an unrealistic expectation. But they will ask the silly question that you're too embarrassed to ask in front of your peers because you're supposed to know the answer. They'll throw out the audacious idea ungoverned by your politics, your turf, your hierarchy, and your approval processes. they got no skin in the game. Their role is simply to say something to stop you thinking the way you always have them to help you think differently. So we were designing a new retail dining and entertainment complex for Hong Kong Disneyland. And we were asked to uh, come up with some new ideas. So I gave them the same challenge I'm going to give all of you now. I'm going to name an object. You get seven seconds to draw it. Are we ready? Ready. Okay, don't show it to me at the end. You will after I've described it, but not right away. So I would like you please to draw a house. Seven, six, five, four, three, Two, one. Okay, pens down. No cheating. Now, don't hold them up just yet. Let me see. Did you or did you not draw a door in the middle at the front on the ground? To yes. the left, but yeah. Okay, <laughs> Mine's right. in the middle. Let me see. Two windows and you put bars over them? One window and there's a just a line, the crossbar. That's a bar. That's a okay. bar. Okay. <laughs> How about right. you, Elizabeth? How many windows? Two. Two bars. with bars? Okay. Jen? I didn't get to, to the windows yet, <laughs> but I was getting to them. <laughs> I would have she drunk. was just painting the house with bars. <laughs> um, and what shape is the roof? It's a triangle. Yeah, triangle. it's a triangle. Yeah. Why? Because our river of thinking, all of our areas of expertise and experience have taught us that's what a house should look like. And so when I asked everybody to hold up their drawing, all the uh, American architects held up the same drawing that you just drew. And I knew <laughs> they would. But she didn't. The young Chinese chef, she held up a drawing that looked completely different to everybody else's. It was dim sum architecture, which if you've never seen it before, we all laughed because we stayed, We realized we stayed in our river of thinking of what a house should look like. She drew a round bamboo dish that your dim sum would come in with a pork ball, a shrimp ball and a little Chinese lady waving out of the window. On the way out the door, somebody just stuck a post-it note over her drawing that said distinctly a dim sum architecture, distinctly Disney, authentically Chinese. Seven years later, Distinctly Disney, Authentically Chinese became the brand strategy positioning for the Shanghai Disney Resort and guided everything we did. So don't always, I think if you only invite the executives in, uh, then you're just, you're, you're too far removed from the frontline operations and you're too far removed from the consumer. So I would encourage you to think about who in your organization have you not tapped for an ideation session before that you could bring in? Yeah, the trick would be to get the executives to agree. Well, here's the thing. Yeah, but here's the thing. Get over it. Sorry. (laughs) We are at a very unique tipping point in time where up until very, very recently, almost now, we always had more to learn from our elders than they had to learn from the younger generation. And that is about to get exploded very, very quickly. But it's a question of pride. I get it. But if you want to survive and thrive, here's the other thing. So the talk I gave at Social Marketing Media World this year was the death of marketing the birth of the experience economy. What do I mean by that? Marketing implies the word at. I'll market at you. I'll create great content. I'll disrupt the consumer. Piss off. I don't want to be disrupted. I want to see my grandmother's hamster. 
If every third image on your social media feed is an advertisement, then I'm getting more pissed off. I may have been neutral about your brand before, but now I really don't like it. So if you're going to disrupt me, create great, fun, engaging content, not strategic content, because that's really boring. But yes, it ticked all your boxes. And so I would encourage people to just get out of their river of thinking of how we've created content in the past. And it's it's not just that. we are. How do I know we're moving to the experience economy? Because Generation Z are already telling me. They're already buying, so they're not going to own houses. They're not going to own cars. They are buying experiences, escape rooms, Airbnb, gaming, craft breweries, museum of ice cream. They're popping up all over. Why? Because they're creating great experiences. Uh, did you see the museum of ice cream do an advertising? No, they didn't have to. They created a great experience. Right. Walt wasn't an idiot. On July 17th, 1955, he said, we're going to create an experience first, retail second. Now, fast forward to where we are today. Macy's announced a couple of weeks ago they're closing 125 stores. I got to tell you, if Macy's survives the next six months, as big and as iconic a brand as it is, and I love Macy's, I want them to survive. I love the parade. But I got to tell you, they're going to struggle. And when I say Macy's, I'm talking physical retail. Why? Because they think like retailers. Right. If you are retail... I can purchase you on you're a product or a service and I can buy you online. If you create an experience, then I have a reason to visit. So for those people saying, oh, how's that going to help me drive my quarterly results? Well, guess what, folks? So the six of the most successful shopping malls anywhere on planet Earth per square mile are <gasps> shock. Disneyland, Walt Disney World, Tokyo Disneyland, Paris Disneyland, Shanghai Disneyland, Hong Kong Disneyland. Why? Because they put experience first, retail second. To put that in today's terms, up until Harry, uh, up until Universal Studios purchased the rights to Harry Potter about a decade ago, you could buy a Coca-Cola in their theme park for $3.50. Now, madam, to you, it's a butter beer and it's $11.50. This plastic stick you see before me that you wouldn't give me 50 cents for? No, no, sir. This is Dumbledore's wand, and to you, it's $64 plus tax, and they'll <laughs> happily give you my, your money. Why? Because yeah. we create an experience first. And it's not that mar- marketing's not going to die. It needs to evolve, and it needs to evolve really quickly. And so social media is in the best position, providing it creates engaging content. Stop marketing at me, engage me, embrace me, and just stop putting up really boring crap. <laughs> Great advice. <laughs> I mean, by the way, my, my, I call it design thinking because people pay me for it. My mother says I'm full of shit. It's called common sense. So on that note, why don't you, uh, like, I agree, right? Look, look, come on. Let's pick Everybody pick up their Instagram feed right now and scroll through three pictures and wait for it. One. Oh, here it is. Activate these muscles around and tighten your waistline. Brought to me by Mark Warrior Made Sponsored. Oh, yeah. I can't wait to take advantage of that product. I mean, it's like, oh, Harvard Business Review. Sponsored. Learn more. Let's see. I'm down two more. Oh, look, another commercial for another boring product. It's obviously ticked off all the boxes in the brand strategy team, but it's not engaging. So, you know, right now, if I were to offer any advice, it's everybody needs help right now. Don't market at them. Give them something that will help them. Whatever you think you can do to help people right now, do the right thing. Go out and help. Yeah. So, Duncan, do you want to define design thinking for us, for people that are, yes. are more familiar? Or, yes. and tell me what you think the difference between design thinking and human-centered design is. There isn't one. It's called common sense. My mother was right. Find out what the consumer is looking for or create it and give it to them. That is design thinking. It, all these people, oh, I've got a PhD. I've got, so what? It's what is the consumer looking for 
and deliver it to them. And so most organizations are still too product-centric. They care more about their quarterly results than they do about their consumer. If you ask the most people, are you a, a consumer-centric company? People say, oh, yeah, we, we, yes, yeah, we are consumer-centric. And then if you ask them, put your hands back up if you've ever sat in the living room with one of your consumers. <coughs> Crickets. And so, so you're not, you're a product. And here's the, here's the bigger challenge. Up from 1920 to 2020, Wall Street dominated the way we do business. And rightly so. But here's the thing. The next decade, the level of disruption that's coming, Wall Street's not going to save your ass. Generation Z might, because Generation Z will become the biggest purchasing power in the next decade. And they think differently from you. They don't, not only will they not buy your products and services if they don't believe in what you stand for, your purpose, they don't want to work for you. Well, how the hell are you going to be relevant 10 years from today if this generation chooses to be entrepreneurs? Why do they choose to be entrepreneurs? Because they grew up through 9-11 and the mortgage crisis of 2009, and they watch their parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles get laid off, and they don't trust big corporations. That's why they want to be entrepreneurs. But they don't believe you have a purpose. And most companies don't have a purpose. If you can't all answer the question with the same sentence when somebody says, what's your purpose? You don't have one. By the way, it's not a philanthropic cause. It's not a charity. It's what do you stand for? And why is it so important? We're all investing in artificial intelligence, and we should. We're all investing in data, and we should. We're all investing in blockchain, and we should. That's the tech side of the house. But this generation that cares more about purpose than profit would challenge every single business in such a way that we strategically can't see because it comes from here, not from here, it comes from our hearts. And so I was asked recently to give a, a talk to the world's largest tool manufacturer. They make more hammers, chisels and saws than everybody else. And I thought, hmm, I know nothing about tools. I'm a DIY disaster area around tools, especially when they're in Swedish. <laughs> and it gets even worse. Lots of swearing coming out of the bedroom. So I thought, how can I find out more about what's important to their consumer? Human-centered design thinking. I went down to Home Depot and Lowe's and stood there for two days, for eight hours a day, and listened and watched their consumer at the point of purchase. And I went back and talked to this brand. And I said, guess what? This generation has never heard of you. And they don't care. They're not talking about your brand. They're not talking about your products, the hammer, the chisel, or the saw. They're not even talking about the price point. What they're talking about is what's important to them. We're going to remodel our dream bathroom, our dream kitchen. We're going to remodel our dream apartment. I said, your purpose, if you choose to create one, is you could be the brand who helps people build their dreams. And you can see the finance guys rolling their eyes going, oh, this guy's nuts. <laughs> and they're probably right. I probably am. I'm okay with that. <laughs> but, but, but I might save your job. Because, and here's why. If you're the brand who can help people build their dreams, could you be in sports? Yes. Entertainment? Yes. Hospitality? Yes. Finance? Yes. Banking? Yes. Education? Yes. Insurance? You could be in any line of business you want. No, no, no. We make tools. And our definition of innovation isn't its iteration. We're going to expand into Mexico and India. They will buy our tools. They have a growing middle class. No, they won't. Amazon spent billions of dollars on shipping last year. Do you think Amazon wants to do that a decade from now? We're building houses in Houston today on a 3D printer. As you probably saw in the news last week, two Italian engineers were asked, for, a hospital went to them for help. They said, we can't create enough. What the, um, the thing for the ventilator, the injector system or whatever it was, I can't remember. It's a piece of equipment they needed for their ventilators and people were dying. These guys walked in with their 3D printer, printed out 600 of these particular components that they needed in less than eight hours for less than a dollar a piece. Wow. So, so here's the thing. But we didn't have a smartphone 15 years ago. I put it to you that 15 years from now, 30% of what you buy on Amazon, you will print at home. 
they'll save billions on shipping, production and storage. You'll have it instantly, which is what you wanted anyway. Uh, so what will I be making with a hammer, a chisel or a saw? Oh, that's right. I'll be gone. Uh, but if they had a purpose, they could get into another line of business, but they don't have a purpose. So they can't. D uh, hammers, chisels and saws will be in a museum in my lifetime. There's no question about that. Wow. That's like yeah. big, bold statement so oh, you want I, another one I got uh, another. You want sure. bold? i'll go bold well, here's the thing, right? so here's the thing in the next decade artificial intelligence is scheduled to take away anywhere between 10 and 20 percent of the jobs across north america in general general because to be that much more intelligent than the human race thousands of times present so how will you and i compete in that environment well guess what when you were all little girls, you got a big present for your birthday or for Christmas. It came in an enormous box and you took the present out of the box and you played with the present for about a day. And then what did you spend the next five days playing with? The box. The box Why? Because yeah. the box could be anything you wanted it to be. It was your castle. It was your rocket ship. It was your fort. And then you went to school and somebody said, oh, it's just a box. And we start killing people's creativity at a very, very early, uh, early age. So Ken Robinson says that education is the biggest killer of creativity. We're all, we all have a vivid imagination. I know that one of you last week had that dream with David, uh, David Beckham, Beyonce and the unicorn. <laughs> I see there was a unicorn clue in there for you. But we, <laughs> we, all, we all have weird dreams, right? So we've all got an amazing imagination. We were all born curious. We used to ask why, 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 why. That's what your children ask every day. They're better than your consumer insights team and your, and your data at getting to the core consumer truth because they don't stop at the first or second why. But then we go to school or get a job and somebody tells us there's only one right answer. So we stop asking the second why. But your data would tell you if you ask people why they go to Disney, they'll say, I go for the rides. Well, that tells me it's a capital investment strategy of a couple of hundred million dollars. But if I pause for a moment, and act childlike, not childish. And said, well, why do you go for the ride? Well, I like small world. Why on earth do you like small world? Well, I remember the music. Why is that important to you? Well, it reminds me of my mum. Why is that important? Well, I take my daughter now. What that person's just told you on the fifth why is the real reason they're visiting Disney it has nothing to do with new capital investment whatsoever. It has everything to do with that person's memory and nostalgia. That is a communication campaign that could save you hundreds of millions of dollars and be more relevant. And then there's intuition. I know that all three of you have looked at the back of the head of somebody you think looks really hot. And that person's immediately turned around and stared at you and you had to blush and look away really quickly. <laughs> how do I know that? Because <laughs> we've all done it. Right? Right. So how did that person know you were looking? It's called intuition. You have 100 billion neurons in your first brain that sits above your eyes and you have 100 million neurons in your stomach. And think about the decisions you make every day about the clothes you're choosing to wear today, the car you choose to drive, the brands and services you choose to engage with every single day. Did you make a strategic decision? No, you went with your gut. It's a remarkably powerful computer. And back to that human-centered design question, we were tasked by Disneyland Paris to get more people to come more often and spend more money. And our data told us who had an affinity to the brand, who could afford us, who'd been shopping online, who was a 10 out of 10 of oncoming this year. Well, they hadn't come. So clearly our data was missing something. So we set out to find out why, because they were either liars or procrastinators. And so I was in this woman's house and I saw a photograph on her mantelpiece. I said, oh, how old are your children, love? Four or five? She goes, oh, no, love, they're 14 and 15. How do I know that to be true? 
Because if you have children, I'll bet you the photograph in your family room is anywhere from two years to 22 years older in reality. And if you're too young and don't have children yet, I know your parents have that dorky one of you from high school with the braces in their living room that you wish they got rid of years ago. How do I know that? Because we found it in every single household we visited. And when we dug a bit deeper, we found the underlying cause. Parents will tell you, we want our children to kindergarten, junior school, middle school, high school, college, grow up, be happy, healthy and successful. No, we don't. That's a total lie. We want to keep them in that little photo frame. When we walk in the door at night, we are still superheroes in their eyes. Why do we love our grandchildren so much? They're right back in the frame. So we dug a bit deeper based on intuition. Our data, our intuition said they're telling us something here our data's missed. And what we found was this. There are three bittersweet transitions that take place between a parent and a child. Once you cross through that transition, you both desperately want to step back. But you can't. I remember where I was for all three, but I'm listening to mums telling me this story. But I'm a dad. I can use my intuition. I know where I was the day my son at the age of 10 came around the bedroom door. His eyes were half full of tears, just about to flow out crying. And he goes, Papa, I was like, what? He goes, are you Santa Claus? And in that one split second, imagination, creativity. But what had hurt so much was what he'd really said was, I'm not your little boy anymore, Daddy. I'm crying. That hurt. Girls, you guilty girls, you will not remember. You will not remember where you were that fateful day. But your dad does, and you can test me. Yeah, when we get off this call, you can text him and ask, and he'll answer you in a nanosecond, but you don't even remember it took place. I know exactly where I was. I was in Kissimmee, Florida, about two miles from here. I was out on the outside of the curb. The, the Panera's next to me. Michael's is coming up. There's a black car coming towards me. My daughter, Adriana, was 13. It was my left hand she dropped that morning for the first time when she dropped daddy's hand for the first time in public because she didn't want to hold daddy's hand in public anymore because it was embarrassing. Girls, you will not remember it. Fathers will answer you like that and they'll tell you if it was their right hand or left hand. It is a seminal moment between a father and a daughter. And the last one for us last year was uh, she got her first job. We used to drive her up to college and back and pack and unpack a third of the room. Only this time she got a real job and it was in Manhattan. She graduated from university and we took all her stuff packed it into her apartment in New York, unpacked it. We cheered, hugged and laughed. And then my wife and I got in the Uber out to LaGuardia and cried her eyes out all the way. Now, going in, our going in hypotheses based on the data was if we build it, they will come. Why? Because it's the way we've always done it here. We just build attractions, they will come. It's worked that way for 75 years. Why won't it stop? Well, what we realized by simply spending a day with a end user, human-centered design, what we found out was mum does not wake up in the morning doing what our data tells us, worrying about whether or not Disney's going to have a new ride this year. Mum wakes up every morning worried about how quickly her children are growing up and how she wants to make special memories for them while they still believe, while they still hold my hand, while they're still here. That's a segmented communication campaign, not a capital investment strategy, that drove record results and turned a very product-centric, we-know-better culture into a consumer-centric one, where it's now mandatory for every Disney executive to work frontline cast member positions in the park once or twice a year and spend a day in the living room of a Disney consumer at least once every two years. So my point is this. In the next decade, many, many, many skill sets will be stripped aside by by artificial intelligence, essentially the left-hand side of the brain, a strategy, statistics, analysis, finance, legal, algorithm. But the right-hand side of the brain, the things we were all born with, you were all born creative, we're all born with imagination, we're all born curious, and we're all born with intuition. Those skill sets will become the most employable of the next decade simply because whilst they might be programmed at some point in the future, 
they will most likely, according to the three AI experts I've spoken with in the last 12 months, not be programmed into artificial intelligence anytime soon. Therefore, the things we were born with that we've hidden away and we were told they're not important are actually the most important ones. And it's time to bring them back out of the cupboard and use them again. I love that. Yeah. And maybe it's time for those who are the analytic, you know, they're always just in that side of their brain to get them out. Yeah, but it's about, here's the thing. People say, why did you leave Disney? Are you mad? You were in charge of innovation creativity. Yeah, I was, but I was there 30 years. That's three zero, not one three. And I got, I wish I had it now. I've got in the other room, the Jiminy Cricket bronze. Thank you for 30 magical years of service statue. And I kind of looked at it and I was like, yeah, shit. I'm over halfway. I should have been a bit more grateful than that, right? But there's a certain sense of mortality. And I just, all I hear is all the C-suites sitting up there saying, you must innovate. We must be brave. You must take risks. We must think differently. And all of their employees are sitting there going, that's great. Is anybody showing me how to do that? And nobody's people teaching people how. I thought, oh, that's all I have to do. So I created a toolkit that makes innovation easy, creativity tangible, and the process fun. Companies hate the word fun, but guess what? You can't change a culture by talking about it. You have to create a toolkit that Fred and Sally, who work for you for one year or 20 years, choose to use when you're not around. Therefore, make it easy, tangible, and fun. Well, training and then also motivating, like incentivizing them to do so. Yes, because they're enjoying it, not because they're getting more money. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay, so we're going to take a little brain break on our show. Sometimes it's halfway. I work pretty close to halfway. Sometimes we get way past half, and then it's. And I want everyone to share real quick your favorite Disney movie. I know mine. What's it? Saving Mr. Banks. That's a Disney movie? Huh. That's <laughs> what? what do you mean it's about Mary Poppins? <laughs> so awesome. So she responded to a tweet I put out the other day of like, what's the most, because I was watching Dirty Dancing. And so I put out, okay, iconic movie, what's yours? And that was hers. Mine is Aladdin. Ooh, I just love that story. That would be my answer. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> that means okay, great minds like think alike. Like the new one, like the live action or the animated? Sure, I'm going to like the live action too because it's you Will Smith. But I, I, Robin Williams was just incredible in the oh animated. Gosh, I, I just love that to pieces. I, I found an Aladdin to marry. Sorry, Megan. Ah, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> and Duncan, what's yours? Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, even though the sound of it is something quite atrocious. Uh, practically perfect in every way and or in every job there must be done there is an element of fun Mary Poppins Mary Poppins was written essentially it was an interesting story Walt took the book from PJ Travers gave it to the Sherman brothers Richard and Bob Richard's a very good friend of mine he's 96 if you ever want a definition of creativity you bring Richard in on a grand piano and if you've never seen a bunch of staid corporate executives singing along clapping crying and then to finish is it he sings supercalifragilisticexpialidocious backwards like Oh my god! I would totally cry. It's an iconic part of my childhood, I suppose, and it's such an optimistic, happy. It's it's a jolly holiday, isn't it? Chim chimney, <laughs> feed the birds was Walt's favorite song, and on the anniversary of Walt's death, uh, Richard was invited to Disneyland to play uh, "Feed the Birds," and there was a grand piano out in the middle of Main Street, USA, and as he started to play "Feed the Birds," a white dove appeared out of nowhere landed on the piano, stayed there for most of the song, and then left. Oh, my. Wow. That so, um, is Yeah, Mary Poppins. Good old Mary Poppins. So, and here's the story. You know, we're, we're, we're redefining who a true hero is now. And it's most often than not the most unsuspecting people that come across as the most generous. I was invited to host Mary Poppins for the day at Disneyland's 50th anniversary. 
Her name's Julie Andrews. I was beyond honored and humbled. But what a lovely, lovely, lovely lady. So before the day itself, we were talking to her, her manager. And, you know, when you've got a celebrity coming to the park, you normally have a rider of things they want in their trailer. And so we were told, so that we were being briefed. They said she wants a, t- a teacup, a saucer, and an electric kettle. And everybody's like, what did he just say? I was like, don't worry, I got it. So I went up to the local little old little old lady's tea shop in Fullerton in California. And hopefully she's still there and doing well. And I bought a teacup and a tea saucer. And she, I let her choose it. I told her who it was from. She was beyond herself. Mary, Mary Poppins. Yeah. Julie Andrews was going to have her <laughs> teacup. So Julie obviously used it for the day. Oh, with some British tea, obviously. And so um, at the end of the day, I said to Julie, we were just packing up. And I said, hey, do you want you taking the teacup home? She goes, no, of course I'm not taking the teacup home. I said, well, let me tell you a little story. And she goes, she looks at her watch. She goes, we got half an hour. Come on, let's go give it back. And so we got in the limo and we drove up to Fullerton. She didn't have to do this. And she walked into the store and she said, I'm Julie Andrews and this is your teacup. And I burst out crying. <laughs> and this little old lady, if you if you look it up, if you look up British, if you live out in California, look up British tea shop Fullerton, just north of Anaheim. If you walk into that store, I guarantee you, even today, there is one teacup with a tea saucer and a, and a spotlight. And it's like a shrine saying, oh, this awesome. is the cup used by Julie Andrews. Well, and I bet you've helped keep her in business by telling this story too. Well, there That's we go. Awesome. Go buy your two. <laughs> Do it. Yeah. All right. Awesome. I love it. So Jen, you want to kick us off with the, the rest? Yes. Oh, wait, there's more? There's more. Wait, there's, there's more. more. So we, we've talked a bit about having extra time on our hands. Um, a lot of us are experiencing that in some way or another right now. But in regards to small business leaders, what do you feel like they should really be focusing on and spending their time on right now? Helping their family, helping their local community. If you do good by people right now, helping your employees. And we talked about this just before we came on air. I put out a post last week challenging all large corporations to have their executives give up this year's annual bonus and annual share allocation. It's not about giving up their salaries. Their salaries are less than 20% of their total package. They gave up just this year their annual bonus and their share package for this year. One year, they could save hundreds of thousands of jobs in corporate America. And so if you're small, I guess you've got to ask yourself your question, what can you do? So right now, I'm a self-employed speaker. Right. And so right now, guess how many gigs I have between I've lost 65 speaking opportunities between now and the end of June. That's a lot of speaking opportunities. And so I I have exactly zero percent of income coming in. So I'm like, okay, so how can I have A, I'm making damn sure my family and my friends are happy and healthy. B, I'm doing a lot of webinars for free. In fact, we're going to announce the first one coming up in a minute. I'm going to be showing you how to use the tools. We're going to do one hour every couple of weeks. We're actually going to take one tool and drill right down. Just help other people. You got time? Help other people. What goes around comes around. A massive believer in karma. I spent six weeks in India last year. And uh, at the end, towards the end, this uh, my driver had left something. And this tiny little old lady came walking over. We reckon she'd walked about half an hour in bare feet to give back an object to a complete stranger. Now, would you or I do that? No, we wouldn't. We wouldn't even drive five minutes. And I asked my driver, I said, why do you think she did that? And he said, karma. We're such big believers in karma and what we do in this life will come back and pay us forward or against us in our next life. The karma keeps us very gentle around one another. And so there's another wonderful expression that I think people could keep that certainly impacted me last year. I was listening to Sad Guru. 
He is the spiritual advisor to the Prime Minister of India. We were sharing the stage together. And he finished his speech with one sentence that challenged everything I knew about everything I've always thought was right. And he simply said this, you can live your life in pursuit of happiness, or you can simply enjoy the happiness within. In one sentence, he slammed Western culture because we're always in pursuit of the bigger house, the bigger car, the bigger something my neighbor's got that I haven't. And he said, or you could simply enjoy the happiness within. And you see the poverty in India, but yet you see a much smaller suicide rate. You see a great deal more happiness. This is a unique moment in time. Yeah. But you know what? I made dinner. My daughter's come home from New York. She's 25. She hasn't been home in six years. We made dinner together the other night, and we haven't done that in a very long time. And we, we, yesterday, she went out to buy groceries, and she insisted that mum and dad wouldn't go with her. And she came and stood outside the front door and wiped every single tin and every single bag down with a wipe so mum and dad wouldn't get sick. And, you know, what's really important right now, I think somebody once said, isn't it, will anybody remember 100 years from now whether or not you made the meeting? No. They'll remember what you did, that reached out and touched them and did something, whether it was big or small. But, you know, it doesn't matter if you work for a small business. Chances are you're an entrepreneur. If you're an entrepreneur, you can help other people because you can help think differently and solve challenges. So think about who else you might help at this particular moment in time, as well as yourself, because you'd be amazed how much it will repay in the long term. That is sage advice. No question. I, yeah, personally struggling with for myself doing my own thing in light of everything that's going on. So helping other people is something that I should probably just do and then I'll get from that. Apart from anything, look, be selfish about it. It'll distract you from the worry. And that's a good start. If it just distracts you for an hour, that's a good thing. Right. Elizabeth? How about either applying design thinking to the employee experience? Maybe you want to go that direction or talk to us about like, are you familiar with technologies or methods for gathering that data insight on how their employees are actually feeling and, you know, what folks are thinking about, like opening up those channels that, you know, probably yeah. probably most likely did not exist before. Yeah, ask them, be present at a time of crisis. So I worked for, I was working for Walt Disney World on September the 11th, 2001, more commonly known as 9-11. And We didn't know exactly what had happened. The moment it happened, we found out pretty quickly. Our job was simply to create a safe environment to evacuate. Goodness knows how many hundreds of thousands of people were on our property that day safely, smoothly, and look after our cast at the same time. And the order was, but here's the difference, planning. Walt Disney World knew it would have to close its gates one day in in an emergency evacuation. So Walt Disney World already had a plan in place. It amazes me the amount of people that go, oh, like, really? You didn't see this coming? <laughs> I'm always amazed, and I won't name the particular airline. But, you know, we know I live in central Florida. Guess what? You're going to storm every single day at three o'clock, every single day from June the 1st to September the 15th. And Walt Disney World plans for that storm every single day. Every single day they execute against the storm with excellence. And yet the airline in question, who, who's based in, well, I won't say where they're based because I'll give it away, but they know there's going to be a storm every single day between June and September, which is going to disrupt their flights. And guess what? Every single day, it's a surprise. <laughs> so I would say plan for, plan for everything. And secondly, be present. As a leader, the most, don't hide behind your computers, get out your damn office, walk the halls, get on virtual chats with people. Be present. People want reassurance right now more than anything else. So get out. And you, and you say, could we use data? No, don't use data. Give them a call. Pick up the phone. 
do a video chat and ask them what's worrying them and reassure them to the best that you're allowed to reassure them. And, you know, and everybody right now is going to be advised by legal before they get on the phone. No, just don't get on the damn phone and speak from your heart, for God's sake. People, you know, you're not going to get sued because you reassured somebody. And I think it's, again, it comes back to just using common sense. Quite frankly, I think on, based on this conversation, I think I should retire my job and make my mother CEO of corporate America. <laughs> there you go. Sounds like a good idea. <laughs> That's awesome. It would Jen. run on time. Right. Well, you know, so as a lot of us know, because we've been kind of doing things virtually, digitally for a long time now, especially, you know, we've we've always recorded this podcast via Zoom and stripped audio and all that kind of stuff. So we're kind of used to this. But for most of the people out there, going virtual is a transition, but it doesn't necessarily have to be so challenging. So what would you say is an example of a brilliantly executed virtual process that you're either currently exercising yourself, Duncan, or you've witnessed someone else doing? Well, there's two or three. I think Zoom does a fantastic job because it allows you, if I want to run a workshop, Normally you think, oh, how would I do a work? But Zoom allows me to actually create breakout groups within. And here's the thing. If you don't know how to use it, you've got somebody in your organization that does. Yeah. And if you're a tiny organization and you don't, you've got a daughter or a son. So you know what? Yeah. Invite them in. They know how to use it. They've been using it for years. They know how to create breakout groups. So the other thing that I would encourage you to do as an organization is, look, right now, you've got time right now. You could get your entire executive team or team and say, hey, I don't know how to use Snapchat. I don't know what TikTok is. I don't know how to use Zoom. And ask your younger team members, say, hey, who likes TikTok? Oh, my God, I love it. Could you show me how to use it? Don't give me a presentation on why it's good for the business or strategy. Just download it on my phone and show me how to use it and how to engage on it. Show me how to use Zoom. Uh, be my first Zoom interview. Help me create a breakout group. Now is time to use the younger members of the generation who grew up as digital natives. None of this is difficult. In fact, a full confession before this video Zoom took place, my niece came in and helped me set it up. <laughs> so don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to ask. It's, um, it's a wonderful learning opportunity. I did it at Disney. I actually asked everybody, hey, because you get all the, all the senior people who don't know what some of this new technology is. They're too embarrassed to ask. So all I did was go out and say, hey, who loves TikTok? Who loves Snapchat? Who loves Facebook? Who loves Instagram? Who loves ITTV? And all I got was a list of people who said they love it. Well, therefore, they're my experts. If they love it, I don't have to challenge them on it. If they've said they love it, they're an expert. So all I did was give the list of those employees with the subject matter under each one, introduce them to the execs, and they would go into their offices once a week, every week for three weeks, and uh, become their first friend on Snapchat, download it on their phone, show them how to use it. The senior person was learning from the more junior person about a piece of technology that we're too embarrassed to ask about. And the junior person was meeting somebody it could take them 15 years to meet other. Yeah, that's pretty intense. And then Duncan, you had, you had mentioned earlier, one of your suggestions was just to have fewer meetings. So maybe you want to talk about this idea of synchronous versus asynchronous communication. A meeting would be synchronous communication, right? Where it's like, we all okay. have to be you know, together. So whether that's physical or virtual, right? Okay. Versus, like, so if we were to have fewer meetings, the idea would be asynchronous would just be, you know, work like collaborating on a Google Doc, for example, right? People oh, okay. Get to it, you know, when they get to it, and it's, you know, a living, breathing thing. And so, in this realm, or hopefully going forward in the future of work, you know, where we are more potentially remote and digital. And I think right now, with what people are dealing with, people have like their little kids underfoot and, you know, just stressing about a lot of things, right? So, what do you think the benefits of the asynchronous communication would be? 
So here's the thing. In most organizations, you have roughly, not not this is no set figure, but usually roughly about 65 to 70% of the people inside any organization are introverts and 25 to 30% are extroverts. And when we're in an asynchronous, I think I got that right, when we're in a real meeting, you only hear from 30% of the audience. And yet you don't. So the extroverts, the people who think before they talk, and then you've got those introverts, those wonderful people who think before they talk. And so wouldn't I think the the ability of the, of the I can't remember which synchronous we're talking about but the one where we're actually not talking in real time is i think you'll hear a lot more from the 70 percent of your organization who have some amazing ideas to offer is there a tool or something that you would recommend that you think is good for that a hackathon i mean you could do a hackathon inside of 20 i i would make the hackathons anonymous personally because i think it's more useful that way because again introverts will be dominated by extroverts junior people will be influenced by senior people and just by making it more anonymity around where the ideas are coming from i think you'll get more passion and, and so so that you're voting on the idea not whose idea it was there are a couple of tools i use when we are voting for ideas because ideas are the most subjective thing on the planet megan likes red elizabeth likes pink Jen likes black and white zebras, but Jen's the boss today, so guess what? We'll be doing the black and white zebras. But that might not be the best idea for the consumer or the best one for the business, but because Jen's the boss, we're going to do the zebra idea. Well, that's how ideas have been judged for years, and it's absolutely pointless. So I actually have another tool I use that, again, I'm going to be going online and showing people how, because I don't have my flip, I need my flip charts and pens, as you can tell. <laughs> I need my hands to actually show people how to actually create a, a voting system which makes it completely anonymous. So instead of votes, because what we tend to do at the end of the brainstorm is we wait to see where our boss puts their dot and our boss puts their idea in number 27 and we all put our dot on number 27. But the idea ends up getting stuck, deleted or killed because we weren't passionate about it in the first place. So I've created a tool that takes all the subjectivity out of it and allows people to very objectively vote. They vote with their heart first, anonymously. So you'll get your, you could be at 64 ideas and we'll get down to 16 really quickly, uh, but you don't know who voted for which one. That's how you know where the team's passion lies. Now it's time to vote with your head. And there's another tool that I call Wheel of Wonder, which was created essentially, it was, I think it's Stargazer, created by the Virgin organization, Sir Richard Branson, because he realized that Virgin was one of the most elastic brands. You know, Disney is family entertainment. That's a very narrow brand. Virgin is one of the most elastic brands on the planet. There's nothing you could think of that Richard couldn't do. And so how do they decide? which is right for the business and right for the consumer. They created this particular tool that takes all the subjectivity off the table. And very quickly, I had uh, we were trying to decide when we were launching the new Disney ships where the old Disney ships should sail from. And that comes down to the senior vice president saying, well, I like the Bahamas. And so, oh, no, I like Maui. You're like, it's not what you like. It's what, what's important to the consumer, what's going to drive the business. And that would normally take six weeks to six months inside the Disney organization of deliberation. And I use this particular tool that takes all the subjectivity off. And we uh, we made the decision in 59 minutes, walked out the door and knew exactly which ports we'd be sailing from and made the decision based on what the consumer wanted, not what we thought we liked the most. I love it. Super smart. Okay, so we have one final question, and I'm going to let you pick which one you want to answer. So I like to ask the <laughs> if you could have a superpower in your job, what would that superpower be? Not necessarily, you know, it could be anything. It doesn't have to just be flying or being invisible or whatever. It could be anything. And the other one is, what are you hottest on in terms of tech gadgets, apps that are improving your life? You get to choose which one to pick, which ooh, one to answer. Ooh, ooh, they're both good. I'll take them both. Okay. So option A, remind me what the question was. <laughs> if you could have a superpower in your job, 
Any, if you could do anything. Creativity, creativity. Endless creativity. The the ability to think creatively will become, and as it was published by Forbes, it's been published, it is the single most desirable skill set for the year 2020 to 2030 because it can't be programmed. And in terms of tech that's making my life easier, there's a couple of things I'm using at the moment. One is uh, Wordly. And now allows me to give a speech in 15 different languages simultaneously translated through an artificial intelligence robot, which is amazing because when you go to conferences and you speak in front of thousands of people, normally you've got the simultaneous translators out the back with their little headsets on. And they're usually working 30 to 40 seconds behind you. And God bless them. They do an amazing job. But you know that because you'll make a joke and nobody laughs. And then about a minute later, when you're talking about something deadly seriously, everybody laughs. You're like, what the fuck? But now this enables me, and it's not even an app, but you just you come into the conference, you enter the URL, you say it's Duncan's speech, and you hit I want Russian and text, and it starts to scroll on your phone live. It doesn't miss a second, and it's 99.9% accurate. And equally, if I put my earbuds in, it actually talks to me in Russian. So that's been really useful. The other thing I'm taught, thinking of, well, no, that one's for the future. That one's going to be a surprise. Okay. So the superpower is something you already possess. So I don't know if that really counts. (laughs) But um, And Elizabeth Wordley actually won the IBTM World Innovation Ah. Contest in the fall. So she and I have attended that with a startup two times in Barcelona and my product didn't win. Here's the thing. You you were right to challenge me, but here's the thing. You ask a room full of people to put their hands up if they think they're creative. Unless I've done it a thousand times, and less than three percent of the room are going to put their hands up, but they possess the superpower; they've just right. forgotten. Right. I love that. Well, that's actually that's a perfect way, I think, to, to wrap. Duncan, we can't thank you enough for taking thank the time. This has been wonderful, and I we manifested it. Here we are. All the four of us got together. One year later. Hey. I, I, hey. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. All right. So this has been Making a Marketer with the Duncan Wardle, and we will catch you next time.